0: You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, an inoculation against viruses of the heart and mind, immune repair for the soul, homeopathic stimulation of the urge to connect, and psychic support for those daring enough to find the others. This is not a test. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, social innovator, author of Your Money or Your Life, and host of the podcast, What Could Possibly Go Right, Vicki Robin. What is an
1: appropriate scale for a human to have a sense of self-expression
0: and true mastery? Vicki will be helping us find ways to emerge from this moment of social and economic despair so we can reckon together with the consequences of confusing monetary wealth with human freedom. It's time to intervene on behalf of the people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. The final part of a marathon road trip I had with Genesis Peorage in 1993 was just released to Team Human Patreon supporters. You can gain access to all three parts, plus other archived conversations with people like Timothy Leary, Terrence McKenna, and Joanna Harcourt-Smith by becoming a paid teammate now. For as little as $2 a month, you'll gain access to our Team Human community Discord, a special new RSS feed of Team Human episodes along with all our bonus content, and other rewards like my books and comics. Join Team Human supporters like Emily Conrad, Ward Sturrock, Thatcher Minds, Jason Morrison, and Andrea cathol by going to patreon.com slash teamhuman or to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support to find the others. I think we're reaching a new phase with our COVID lockdowns and weirdness. You know, the dominant thread I'm seeing now in... Uh, certainly online, but in real life too, is uh, neighbors kind of shaming each other over who got the COVID shot and who didn't, right? Is the COVID shot real or fake? And what constitutes cutting the line? You know, if they call your group, are you supposed to go or are you supposed to not go because there's a group of people who need it more than you? So so if you're a teacher, a firefighter, healthcare worker, do you go even though you know that there's people who need it more? It's hard to say. You know, if you believe the virus is real and that vaccines will provide some immunity, then when you are called, the best thing you can do for Team Human, a.k.a. the herd, is go and get a shot as quickly as possible and encourage others to do the same and don't sweat too much over this individual going a few weeks ahead of that individual. You know, the bigger problem has been, in New York anyway, uh, 60% of healthcare workers aren't getting it. 60% of people who work in nursing homes are not getting the vaccine. 55% of firefighters are not getting the vaccine. So in New York City, they say, okay, these groups and those groups, we have enough vaccine for them. And then only like 20 or 30% of that group signs up and then they have all this extra vaccine and they've unfroze it and it and it, it goes bad and they 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 have, you know, they try to get their, their friends and their family to line up outside. So at five o'clock after the appointments are done, they can and vaccinate those people, but then they get in trouble for vaccinating those people because they're not really on the on the official list. And then the therapists in my town, you know, most of them are are doing their work online, right? They're doing it by screen and they're on the list to get the vaccine. So if they go and get the vaccine, then I guess that means now they're obligated to start doing therapy in person, but if they haven't done it yet, does that make them unethical? You know, and there's all these, you know, fights and discussions and stuff going on and it's just I don't know. I think the the bigger problem is going to come in the spring, in May, in June, when the supply is relatively plentiful, but too many Americans are refusing to get the shots. And then this creates enough space for variants to evolve, so the vaccines won't even work on any of them. That's maybe the thing we should worry about. And I think the bigger question is that it's counterproductive for people to inject this unnecessary friction of guilt into this process about who is cutting the line and who is not and policing that and we should be using that energy to to go fight for a proper public health system to to reduce uh, the fear of the vaccination or correct conspiracy theories or help the elderly navigate the online forms or if we are vaccinated then we can also go, go volunteer to help with the lines and, and the organization at the vaccination sites. Those are all volunteers. Or just help organize or triage the people who are lining up to get the otherwise wasted vaccine at the end of the day. Or maybe figure out how to publicize the locations with the most available extra unused vaccine. Just get shots into arms. If, of course, that's what you believe. You know, then there's a lot of people who would be upset even that I've said that much uh, kind of pro-vaccine stuff, right? Because they believe the vaccine's going to hurt you. COVID infects the collective organism. You know, I've always seen, you know, people as cells in this bigger thing. And COVID, whatever you believe about COVID or the vaccines, what we do know is we really can't coordinate a response. Certainly not here in America. Yeah, I know in Australia, they took off their masks now. They're just walking around. But here, we can't coordinate a response. We don't understand how to do kind of collective treatment and prevention. And, you know, while we can all make our own decisions about about what we do and what we don't do, we may want to hold off on shaming others about what they do, Or don't do. There's some cells in the organism that are refusing the medicine, right? And oh no, oh no, right? But that's because they genuinely believe it compromises our vitality that all of the precautions against covid are compromising our collective vitality like my my dear friend and and recently passed healer mark filippi right he wouldn't do any kind of vaccine or he wouldn't even take advil right he looked at covid and all disease as on some level kind of autoimmune and that we fight it with will and with faith and with coherence, that we stop panicking at invisible enemies and and have less masks and more love, right? More collective coherence. And in that view, even if we identified the viral mechanism, that's only the tool that we use, we humans use to inflict this on ourselves, that there's always pathogens and they're all over the place all the time. Whether we choose to grab it and respond to it is our choice, our body's choice on some level. A bit what Tyson Truncaporta was saying when he was on a few months ago, it's kind of his, his indigenous approach to this, that the virus is information that we need to be able to understand and metabolize. The medical question in that case would be whether this is truly a novel threat, whether it's truly alien. That's why we call it novel. The idea is that as little kids, you... you. And this is part of why they don't get so sick from COVID, is your body is in a different state where it's learning to recognize various pathogens and viruses and learning how to mount immune responses to them. But when you're grown up, it's really different. When you're grown up now, if your body is looking at something really, really new, that's why they call it the novel virus, something genuinely new, then you won't know really quite how to respond to it. And you get all these crazy immune responses. Kids' immune systems adapt, but those of us whose immune systems have already developed, already have all their kind of viral codes in their indexes, how are we going to contend with something that's truly alien? And that's the argument the medical establishment is making. This is genuinely new. No, 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 no. This is different, which is why you need a vaccine to teach you how to respond to it. And That contention, I think, is at the heart of the debate over whether you get a vaccine or not. I don't mean in terms of butting on the line to get the vaccine, but whether or not the vaccine is a good thing. All of these stories of of aliens and kind of other conspiracies, I feel like they're metaphors for this bigger collective process we can't name. How do we make choices for ourselves as a group, right? Do we just become fascist and make everyone follow our idea? Or do some people, you know, do the thing that we want and other people don't? It's really tricky. You know, how are we to respond collectively together. And when those ones are responding differently than we're responding, then we get mad. Oh, no, you're not doing this. And now you guys are going to get us sick. Or you guys are responding, you know, by getting vaccines, and you're all going to be programmed by Bill Gates to hurt the rest of us. You know, and... (laughs) And the more we stoke our fear of the other responses, you know, the faster we get ourselves to weirder and, I would argue, less realistic places. You know, it's, it's you know, people read a, uh, a new law or something that's put into place about immigration and, and testing, and they say, look, this means that the prison camps for people who are refusing vaccines are a week away, you know, that there's going to be crazy mask mandates and censorship. And it's always just about to come, right? It's always just, just wait and see, you know, and they did that on the, on the uh, other COVID side too, when they're saying, just wait, the hospitals are about to be completely overrun to the point where there's not going to be enough anything for anybody. Just it's coming next week. It's going to just peak and be even worse. And this wait and see, that's almost this gambling mindset. Like, just one more bet and we'll make back the money. I know it. Or, or the addictive mindset. Like, like, this is my last cigarette. I, I promise. All right, just one more cigarette and then I'm going to quit. You know, it's, it's not that we're too dumb. You know, in some ways, it's that we're too smart. We're looking for connections between things because we really did it so well for a while and it felt good. You know, so we keep looking for more connections, trying to make sense of something that we can't really make sense of. And we end up accepting connections and things that aren't really there just to feed that addiction for sense making in this really dark, crazy, weird, disconnected time. And I feel like on a, on a societal level, you know, this is Western civilization. America is that, not accepting that the Aborigines, they pretty much identified every cycle that mattered. We went on developing things, and there were great things, and airplanes and Prozac and whatever, with no regard for the patterns that we had already learned. We end up disrupting these things. We're not just disrupting some, you know, technology or, or cable TV or, or some business competitor. We are disrupting the deeper patterns by which our bodies, our, our society makes sense. And once we're separated from those patterns, we're kind of defenseless. Everything becomes, you know, these legal disputes between neighbors, like arguing if the sun is up or down because we're indoors and we're so disconnected from the sky that we can't even tell. The biggest threat to our collective health is our alienation from the underlying cycles, the, the cycles from, from, from our gut biomes to the light in the sky to the moon cycles to the moods and hormones flowing through our bloodstreams. And this makes us you know, more vulnerable to the virus, less capable of responding coherently as individuals or cooperatively as communities. And most of all, what we all need now more than anything is, is no, not love, sweet love, is some slack. You know, everybody is is doing and going and responding as best as they can with the information they have, their, their underlying assumptions about the trustworthiness of what they're being told, and their fear of getting sick or transmitting disease. So don't be judgmental. Don't be mean, even to people who are being mean or judgmental themselves. We are neighbors. We are trying. We occasionally panic. We often believe silly things. With COVID, as with politics, whatever it is we believe, it means a whole lot less than what we do for one another. You know, shovel some snow for the old lady next door. Help your neighbor's kids with their homework. You know, order takeout from the struggling restaurant. It may be hard to figure out how to do the right thing, but it's actually pretty easy to do lots of right things one person who truly understands healthy collaboration and exchange is my guest today author activist and social innovator Vicki Robin. I had the pleasure of appearing on the podcast she does for the Post Carbon Institute, What Could Possibly Go Right?, which gave me an excuse to revisit her books, including Your Money or Your Life, about true financial independence, and her more recent book on living entirely on locally produced food, Blessing the Hands That Feed Us. Vicki is to conversation what Coltrane was to jazz. Coming from her cottage in Whidbey Island, north of Seattle, Washington, here's Vicky Robin. I don't want to die anytime soon, but I don't know. Eventually, I'm gonna be 60 in a year, so we're in less in a few months. So that's it.
1: You're nothing, you're a pisha. <laughs>
0: Right. 60 is the new 40. Right.
1: 60s is the new 40. Right. And 40 is the new 30. I, s- I used that for a long time. I'm right. 75. At 30, so
0: God, is the new 13, <laughs> as far as I can <laughs> tell.
1: Actually, humanity, that's about, yeah, right. 13 is the new um, four. We're just out of toddler.
0: <laughs> I know. Well, you know, it was weird. T- Timothy Leary was really into this concept called neoteny. The idea that adults have childlike features and that the more, the, the longer the childhood of a species, the more evolved it is. So that's why we should look at it as a good thing that 30-year-olds are living in their parents' houses still.
1: Well, I, I'll tell you, that's a good thing because, I mean, from a c- consumerism point of view, that's a really good thing. Right. Sharing a household is like back, you know, in the days when I was lecturing about the ecological footprint, the biggest thing you can do to lower your ecological footprint is be poor. Yeah. Because you just don't have as much opportunity to fuck over the planet. hope we're not recording.
0: <laughs> we are, but that's all right. It's <laughs> okay. not okay. radio. Well, it is a little bit radio, but.
1: But anyway, no, it's like, and that's so counterintuitive for the consumer culture.
0: Right. To aspire to that. It's like nobody aspires to that. Yeah, we all think, I mean, it's the life stages, you know, but I mean, that's all made up in Madison Avenue. But yeah, you're 18, you go to college and you set out into the world. I mean, I remember when boys and girls, men and women, they lived with their parents or if they couldn't, you lived in like a boarding house with a surrogate parent until you got married.
1: Right. And then they built an extension onto the house.
0: Right. But you know, I guess it was, you know, but I grew up with Marlo Thomas and that girl, you know, or Mary Tyler Moore. You're single and you get your apartment and you live this independent nineteen sixties life and ah, individualism. It's a crack.
1: I know. <laughs> I know. I'm writing an essay now about having bought a refrigerator. Are you at all interested in my talking about that? Sure. <laughs> and so my two refrigerators. I, I had a refrigerator that I bought, of course, used, and it was the most energy efficient refrigerator, of course. And uh, I didn't buy it used; I bought it scratch and dent, you know. And then uh-huh. I put a little magnet of my of cats over the the dents and scratches. And I had it for ten years, and for the last two years, it was freezing my food. I mean, And and, and I was managing it, and it it had forgotten how to defrost itself, and so I was defrosting it. I mean, I was a function of my refrigerator and always trying to salvage my celery. So I finally said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to graduate from this. And I got the refrigerator, and I had this sinking feeling that I had finally totally gone middle class. I had lost all my cred as a frugality person. And then it made me realize that... It's a very interesting thing, but I realized I have a greater memory of things in my life. I can tell you about almost everything in the house I lived in, my parents' house I lived in from the time I was like nine to 13 or something. I can walk through that house and I can describe everything. I cannot tell you about my mother's face. And it's just like, what, what is this? It was like such a shock. And I realized... I can tell you about every car I've had, but I can't bring up my brother's face. You know, and I lived in a fairly cold household. And of course, I'm famous for, like, critiquing materialism. And here it is that I realized that I bonded with things. And I'll bet you lots of people are bonding with things. And it wasn't consumerism. It's just
0: the things stayed put. (laughs) You know, in some ways, it's anti-materialism, though, because consumer materialism is everything's disposable. So you buy 90 cars where a positive materialism is you respect like this little pen I got from V Vale, the guy who used to put together the research and V search books. And I was in his apartment and I saw him writing and I went, oh, that's such a cute pen. And he's Japanese immediately. He's like, oh, you like it here. And he gives it to me. Exactly. And that was 20 years ago. And I've kept it and I cherish it. And That's not bad consumerism. That's conservative materialism.
1: Exactly. That's honoring the stuff of life. Mm. And being in relationship with the stuff of life, it's just interesting to me that it was possible for me to bleed out humans. I could... Yeah, it's just it, very interesting. And maybe it's, I was, I was wondering about this, is whether it's pro-survival, you know, that like when we were coming up, coming out of the trees and all across the savannah, maybe we didn't need to. We didn't need to bond with our mother's face. We needed to bond with things. You know, we need to find food. So basically, it's, it's it, I just want to, I think I'm going write, to write a long
0: essay or book about it. It makes sense. I mean, and you know, from what I've been reading about the way nomadic people lived way way back when they were not bonded as families they were bonded as little tribes you know when a kid would be six seven eight years old and one tribe would pass the other they would trade children because they didn't want to have the same genes all the time so they would actually give their kids to the other tribe and that tribe would give give kids to you I mean so that you you know so you're not all you know having sex with all your cousins all the time uh, but it's interesting but if you're going to do that then you can't bond to your child's face the same way you know that we do in this nuclear family society
1: it's a very strange thing you know i don't know if we're now bonding with computer screens and then we have the pandemic and so now i'm bonding with your face cuz you're coming through my screen and i think bondedness is is to me it's very important Belonging is very important. You know, in consumerism, you sort of belong to your things. You know, in in reality, your things are part
0: of your capacity to live in this world. I was thinking about when we spoke for your show. And you know, It felt really good when we spoke, I think, for both of us. And then I wasn't sure if that happened because we exchanged these great strategies for lifting humanity out of this mess and toward greater sustainability, or, or as the kids today call it, resilience, or is it because of just the basic human connection and rapport that we experience, the acknowledgement in some ways of our mutual hopes some despair, some sympathy, compassion, almost palliative care as we proceed at best over an event horizon into the strange attractor at the end of time or at worst over an unnecessary self-annihilation of our of our species. I mean, or maybe those in some ways are are the same thing, but as middle-aged people now. I'm wondering, what are we doing? Are we actively making the world better and averting disaster, or are we just doing palliative care?
1: So number one, in terms of resonance, I do, you know, when I was, when I was doing my little introduction to your podcast on my podcast, you know, I was talking about being a lunsman. You know, I think there's a music to unbroken lineages of culture, you know, and whether it's, it's sort of New York Jew or whether it's Jew, there is a prior music, what do they call it, a nigun, or whatever it mm-hmm. is, there's a something, there's a lilt. And on that carrier wave, and it doesn't even have to be, you know, did you get bar you know, It doesn't have to be anything like that. It's, it's cultural. And so I think, what are these layers of trust that we're willing to bestow on somebody so that we suspend suspicion, you know, the, the the wariness that people have of one another. You just have to, like, check it out. Is this person trustworthy? How much can I reveal to that person? Uh, friend, foe, food, you know, poison. Part of that, that there's a resonance. And I'll bet you, you know, we couldn't, like, there's no smellies yet on our computers. But I'll bet you people who are from the same tribe smell right to each other. Mm. Uh, there's And there's something with, you know, with indigenous peoples, they will introduce themselves as clan, tribe. They'll introduce themselves in their language. And you can feel in the presence of that. First, when I heard it, I felt antiquated. Like, I don't understand. Why isn't this person telling me about themselves, you know? But But there is a recognition that there is no solitary self apart from... The, the tribe. And and maybe we just have a, um, a matrix of tribe in our minds. And so when somebody shows up who's part of that matrix, there's an instantaneous flow. The other thing is, at, I, I don't know if you studied my whole biography, but one of the things I did was um, I started a dialogue process that was designed to be the simplest thing to allow friends, neighbors, and strangers in public places like cafes switch from small talk to big talk. And I did it because I was convinced that if we could just talk to each other, if we could do lateral connection, if people could turn to one another and go like, this is nuts. What do you think? You know? <laughs> it's like it came from seeing people in a, in a rainy evening in Seattle waiting for a bus and And it was even before cell phones, because now everybody would be on their phone. They were just waiting there. And I thought the power of those 50 people online, if they could turn to each other, would be enormous. So, and maybe this is weird, but I long for connection. I long for that carrier wave. I, I long for that thread to open up. And I feel it almost physically when somebody will open up the channel and, and so the music is happening. It's sort of like a vibrational thing.
0: And then you can riff. Then you can go anywhere you want to go. The whole purpose of this show was originally to almost model a style of conversational jazz. Exactly. And then that models a new way for people to experience rapport with each other.
1: I used to say about the conversation cafes because, you know, when I'm I'm sort of a social reformer, you know, <laughs> so when I get onto something, I'll do it for three years solid and I'll find out really what it is and I'll make everybody else want to play my game. Um, and in the conversation cafes, they usually went for 90 minutes and you would go around twice with a talking object, then you'd open it up. And what I would notice, there would be a magic that happens someplace in there where the conversation was having you, you weren't having it. There was uh, an epiphenomenon in the middle of it that we were all in relationship with. And that's sort of like when the jazz opens up and everybody goes away refreshed, but it's not because anybody was brilliant. I long for that. And, you know, I was thinking about talking to you today and about your focus on technology and our conversation about human connection, team human What do you think is going to be the outcome of people losing the habit of being in one another's presence? To me, it's like a starvation.
0: Yeah, I think they're going to uh, hunger for it. I don't think it's going to be for so long that it'll drop out of our somatic memory. I have a feeling we will do the opposite of what the tech companies think is going to happen. I feel like they think that they've now entrained us to use this for school and socializing and meetings and all. And I think once we get out of this, I think people are going to be pretty hard pressed to get back into one of these spaces. They are so anchored in our psyche as what you do, like, like, when there's a disease, when there's a pandemic, you go on Zoom, you know. So why would we go on this unless we had to?
1: Oh, I see what you're saying. I actually noticed that there's a there's a sweetness. Some some communities, like I'll you know I'll join a like a, a four week class or something like that, and you know, 300 people in all the little squares yeah. and from all over, and somehow I'm I'm ending up in European ones more than you know. US ones. And it, it's like stunning. Oh well, here I am. I'm with people from Sweden and there's a there's a feeling, there's another kind of feeling of being able to be with with all the music of the world, all these different musics,
0: and not having to go there. Yeah, but that's scaled. I mean, so when I want to have a scaled experience around the world, oh, here's a Japanese scientist who's going to talk about this with my Swedish friend and me and someone in Silicon Valley, and we get the time zones right, and we're there. Great. Because that's something we couldn't do in real life. But, you know, when I'm looking at my Queens College students on a Zoom instead of being in the seminar room with them I feel like I'm robbed of all the positive feedback that I would normally get it becomes so much more about the information that we're giving the sort of utility value of the class has now is is in the foreground and all that soft squishy mimetic modeling is is you know pretty faint
1: I wonder you know I used to think I think I don't think it was original with me. This high tech, high touch, or something. Mm-hmm. You know, with the advent of telecommuting a hundred years ago, uh, before many people listening were born, when it it came into being, I thought, well, that's okay. You know, who wants to go to an office? But we have to have equal and opposite spaces and communities. You know, you have to develop a habit of inhabiting where you are interesting benefit
0: in (laughs) in
1: being where you are. Yeah. I I'm, I'm big on relocalization. I'm big on this thing could wink out at any moment. Mm -hmm. You know, this is just dependent on the continual flow of electrons and this winks out and you're stuck with the people in your building.
0: Yeah. You know? Well, and the food around you. I mean, and that's you know what what one of the things that ties together your two main books, you know, your money or your life, and blessing the hands it feeds us, is you're suggesting that we have these kind of large scaled systems, whether it's capitalism or long distance big agra that end up kind of delocalizing and decentering us. Your money or your life is, oh, do you want to be, I mean, most simply, are you committed to capitalism or are you committed to being alive? And they're two really different things. And the blessing, the hand that feeds us. It's like, do you think of a carrot as something that a peers in the grocery store? Or is the carrot something that comes out of the ground six miles from where you live? And what's the difference in these two sensibilities of of the world? So it's not that, I mean, and I'm never, and neither are you, anti-tech. Here we are using tech to speak over 3,000 miles of distance. But our primary incarnation, the primary instance of ourselves is not our Facebook account or <laughs> something there. It's this person in this body, in this place and time.
1: I sometimes joke that I'm the, the kind of creature, I'm like the animal that if, if it got its leg caught in a trap, it would chew its leg off. You know, I just have this like sovereignty, you know, being in possession of myself is really important to me. And it creates a uh, a fascination with learning and with doing. And, you know, I I appreciate that about myself. Uh, So both of these really are about if you want to unhook from the dominant system, they're not like political, they're not sociological, they're not saying what everybody should do. But it's all about if you recognize that you've been uploaded into shall we say, the matrix or whatever. You've been uploaded into a system that is alien to you. It doesn't give us, (laughs) it doesn't
0: care about you at all. It doesn't nourish us or nurture us in spite of the fact that it looks like food or looks like money. Exactly. It looks like sustenance
1: and it's not, it's money. And so we used to be more environmentally and socially competent. We didn't need money intervening in transactions in order to get our needs met. A lot of this really is about being humans with needs and how do we get our needs met? It's, it's actually just so simple. And it's not just the needs for food. It's the needs for companionship and leisure and creativity and learning. And we have, we have so many needs if you want to, like, really be a juicy, self-expressed human. And what this society does is it funnels us into really being sort of like – we're little rats in a cage, and there's this little nipple, and whenever we're hungry or thirsty, we can go like, mmm, and we go on the nipple, and we think we're free beings. Well, we got a
0: wheel to run on, too.
1: Well, totally. <laughs> totally. And if I was outside this cage, you know, there, there was a cartoon years ago that we used to use when we were doing Your Money, Your Life, which is like this little bird in a cage. And the first panel is... Out there, the door is open. The cage door is open. It says, out there is intoxicating freedom. Next panel. In here is basically three hots and a (laughs) cot. And then there's a a silent panel where he's thinking, and then it's like, who the heck left the door open? (laughs) And so this really, you know, if you think, if you go underneath all the things I've done, it, it is disintermediating from the, A false world. I was thinking, you know, like money is actually, I think this pandemic has shown us more clearly than ever the man behind the the curtain. We see more clearly the levers that are being pulled that run our lives. And really, money is the operating system. It is the operating system for humanity. It is the one thing that we all agree on. We can go anywhere and we can, like, now we can do it seamlessly with, with, with credit cards. We used to have to buy traveler's checks. Yeah. <laughs> but it's that is the language, and money is... We can't create money. We can we can do all sorts of, like, buy nothing be or buy nothing New York. You know, we can do all forms of exchange outside of the money system. A- and a lot of people are trying to live their lives almost outside of the money system. But it's really consciously moderating your exposure to a toxic world.
0: It's interesting, though. I mean, there's so many points. So when you're talking about money, you know, using money around the world, I mean, I remember as a kid, we went. We went to Israel on a family trip and we go wandering in the Arab section of Jerusalem, which is, you know, maybe dangerous, you know, as Jews, whatever over the line on their side or whatever. And I remember as we, crossover into the Arab section. My mom checks in her purse. Says, oh, I've got the American Express travelers checks, right? Because Carmalden Malden used to tell us, you know, he's an actor. He'd he say, don't leave home without it, right? It's it's right. like, you're, you're, you're safe with this thing. And I remember thinking, well, really? Are American Express travelers checks mean so much to these other people? It's almost like I could just see them Oh, you're Americans, and you think that this thing that you're going to sign over to me has value? Fuck you! You know, And it was like, it seemed to me so nationalist in a certain mm. way, or so Western, that we think that this thing, this symbol system will have that. And of course, it turns out it does, you know? <laughs> It has value everywhere. There's suitcases of money in every part of the world that you think doesn't, that hates, the more they hate us, you know, the the more the, the money might be valuable. But really, it's a symbol that somehow got invested with value. And that's part of why I think digital happens so completely. Because we already, like you say, we were on this abstract operating system of central currency and digital is again the whole thing is symbols it's not real it's not analog it's not like a record it's just letters and ascii to text and all it's not real so of course it's going to dovetail with money perfectly digital and capital they can go off but those of us in real world scaled biological social reality really have almost nothing to do with those symbol systems. And now, instead of us using those systems, those symbols and systems are using us and sucking whatever's out of us, uh, uh, whatever's left.
1: Yeah, and it's worse, actually, because the more there's AI and robotics, the less us we're, we're needed, really. We're just a burden you know we're really a burden on the system to the system to their system not to each other not to reality no, to no, that not to each other but but we're in a just a massive bifurcation if you know <laughs> it's like i'm sure bernie's talking about this but the most shocking thing is that people are losing their homes they're getting impoverished they can't eat da-da, and the stock market is soaring That is a complete reflection of the value system, that people are expendable. If we had something in us that the system actually
0: needed from us, we would be less expendable. The system was invented to get rid of us, though. I mean, that's, you know, in my work, when I go back to the early corporations and central currency and all, that was all about getting human beings out of the equation. Don't pay people for the value they created, pay them for their time, if that, you know, get them, get them all so that your capital can grow. I mean, Marx wrote about this too. It was never there. So of course, if we're going to amplify a dehumanizing system with digital technology, it's going to accelerate the process at which people are eliminated from, you know, (laughs) from, from valuable enterprise. Totally. So if we, if we're actually
1: positing that there is a reality outside of the money-mediated system, there's a reality outside this. And it's not brutal, life is brutal, short, and, you know, whatever the other words were. And it's not being busted back into the Stone Age. And it's If we posit that there is a life that's available to us outside of this house of cards, of the money system, what is that like? I mean, that's one of the things that I would like to write about is I think our imagination can't even can't even make it into that territory you know and and we you know i mean who wants to do without movies you know i
0: mean well, and why would we have to do without it's like there's you don't a, have to do family. without movies i know people are upset you know, it's like oh if we adopt your platform cooperativism and all your local industries how am i ever going to get my iphone and it's like you could still have your iphone we could still build <laughs> 10 20% of our stuff with giant crazy corporations but maybe not baby carrots and blackberry jam and things <laughs> that could, you know what I mean?
1: I can do Blackberry Jam, but I do it in this in the fall. Right, you know? right. And right. then you have to be friends with me to get Blackberry Jam.
0: Um, yeah, but that's not a terrible thing. What I'm saying is, you know, so all of this activity that we've surrendered to, you know, Big Agra or, or the corporatocracy um, doesn't need to be. They can still make our iPhones or our BMWs or whatever you want, your refrigerator. You know, if we need them, they can make those things, but we don't need our p- pens and paper and food and shoes to come, you know, off the Chinese assembly line as well. That's, that's a different thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I just think it's a hugely interesting conversation about what remains and it's sort of like the exercise. Okay. If you had 50 things that you wanted to absolutely keep from the industrial, the growth industrial economy, you know, really want to keep... So then you start thinking about the list and when you start to think about that list, you'll get down to like item 12 or 13 and then you, you'll, you'll start to sputter because we think we need the whole bundle. But when you actually think concretely about that, about what is the best way to meet your needs for socializing? What's the best way to meet your needs for art? You start to realize there's this whole world outside of... The funnel that looks like a cornucopia, but it's really just a force fed funnel with sort of a, a GUI, a graphical user interface. You know?
0: <laughs> well, yeah, it's consumerism. I mean, and, and, and that's what we got te- television for. I mean, I always used to say, you know, I, I used to think we had television because Lucille Ball wanted to reach the world with her comedy, right? And it <laughs> wasn't. It was we got television to get people, to encourage people to buy more stuff than they needed.
1: No, no, no. We had television, all these technologies in the beginning. I don't know if they're telling the truth, but every technology has had the story in the beginning that it's going to liberate humanity
0: yeah and to be educational and lift totally. people out of poverty and
1: totally so are we just fooling ourselves is that just a you know sort of machiavellian people in the background you know <laughs> planning to like another section of world takeover or are these innocent projections onto new technology actually sincere in the beginning i
0: experienced them sincerely but i was a naive child <laughs> at the same time right. underestimating the power of corporate capitalism but then you could go the other way too though so i know communities well-intentioned communities at least originally who are listen to what we say and go we're going to go off and start our own beautiful psychedelic love farm thing <laughs> and i go and visit them and a lot of them are guys burning man guys in gaucho hats who are you know getting girls stoned on mushrooms and doing the same <laughs> terrible shit that guys do to girls stoned on mushrooms everywhere else in the world you know they they end up closed chauvinistic manipulative power communities not all of them of course but not all technologies end up bad but there's there's a fear i have that you know human nature boy there's elements of human nature that seem to come out and express themselves in nasty ways, whether you're organic or, (laughs) or techno capitalist.
1: Right, right, right. A lot of that is power relationships. It's like an immaturity that, you know, it's sort of that we were talking about earlier about, you know, the toddler mentality of, you know, just like the little kid with the finger pointing, you know, just the, and the grabbing we haven't evolved. And I don't know if evolution is even this is even in the evolutionary cards but we haven't evolved in maturity you know part of maturity is delay of gratification it's the realization that if I do this now if I feed her mushrooms now and I take advantage of her there's going to be consequences later that I don't like it's really it's sort of the it's the moral imagination that there's an outcome of this action that if I take this action, I'm not going to like the future action. And part of that, I'm not going to like the future action is that I will be banished from the tribe. And I really won't like having to grub around by myself. You know, one of the stories that I read recently that took me back further is that is this idea of banking was invented in order to fund the exploitation of the new world, they needed to get build boats and get the boats across the water to get the stuff. And they didn't have the money for it, but then they invented debt. They invented the banking system, which is in support of exploitation. And that's a technology that we, you know, maybe it looked like a really good idea at the time, but it it, it has really jumped the bounds of decency. We're, We're missing, collectively, we're missing a common morality and morality. I mean, I like the word morality and maybe it's because I'm Jewish. I like God, you know, wrestling and stuff like that. And moral dilemmas, you know, because I think that those are your teething rings for being a human.
0: But that's the thing though. That's the, the, both the great and scary thing about the Jewish proposition is that we live in a moral universe, that the universe leans in certain ways. You throw out certain kinds of energy and behavior, it's going to spit back something different. You know. So whenever I read Torah or Bible and God's always saying, if you do this, I will do this. If you do this, I will do that. It's not like there's a dude up there who's going to do these things to you. It's like if you engage with the world in this way – it's going to engage with you back. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Totally. And this is, you know, I was just reading about parenting in Eskimo society where people apparently learn from an early age to be able to contain their anger. And that doesn't mean they're fuming underneath. So they investigated in this you know in this story that may have been apocryphal and they have stories in that society about if you walk too close to the ocean there's this creature that's going to come out and nab you you know so things that that you do that are dangerous there's a story associated with this, or, or in one of my what could possibly go right interviews, I interviewed Severin Cullis Suzuki. She was the Greta of her generation. She's the young woman who spoke at the Earth Summit in 1992. She was nine years old, and she had an eco club, and she was in love with nature, and she just told everybody, assembled, you're ruining our world. Please stop it. You know. And so she was famous for that. Now she, she's married to Haida uh, Man, and she lives in Haida Gwaii. And her auntie, you know, her Haida auntie, told her a story about the fish people and how there were these fish people years ago who, you know, fed the community and they were just the most important fish, but the people took too many of them and the fish people went away. It wasn't, you know, it's like a story of overfishing, but it's a story that went down through the generations about you have to take only what you need and not too much. Because in a regenerative world, if you exercise appropriate restraint and Using what you need and not overusing, the world is completely abundant and will continue to feed you. If you look at the stories, and I've I've interviewed Sherry Mitchell, who's a Penobscot, and Lila June Johnston, you know these stories that are are a science and a technology of consequences. And that's how they've survived. We don't have stories of consequences. And that, you know, basically what I realized is you can do anything you want, but there are consequences. You get to choose what you do, but you don't get to choose the consequences. Our lives are inconsequential. We are living trivial, inconsequential lives. Even some of the smartest people, even our politicians, politicians. Because once you understand that there's consequences to your actions, then
0: you have to do the moral grappling. Well, that's the interesting thing about about the other things you're saying, though. If you're committed to the capitalist system and you're committed to saving and banking and interest, then you can attempt to insulate yourself from the consequences of your actions with money. You know, get a car that drives fast enough to escape from your own exhaust.
1: Right. Exactly. And, you know, that's the irony of this you know, Your Money, Your Life was sort of the breakout book in 1992, and there's a whole movement now that's that sees Your Money, or Life as a foundation stone for it. It doesn't have a moral streak. It's just, it's basically people figuring out how to use the capital, kind of how to be, if the winners of the game are capitalists, how to be a capitalist, but stick in this thing about enough. So you're capitalist but you've determined how much is enough because you've realized that if i understand how much is enough i can liberate my time for other things i can accumulate enough money and live on the and the in- income i am a capitalist and i wonder about this you know i'm i like real estate so i own a, a rental and i consider myself providing housing and an income and you know so it's right. like I could, you could might be an evil rentier i know <laughs> <laughs> I know. And the other thing is, is now that I've been taking a look at, you know, uh, colonialism and, right. and racism, you know, looking at that history, I like looked around my house and I thought, you know what, this
0: is stolen land this is probably my house is completely stolen materials But you're now renting back to somebody who may have been the indigenous or the the child of the indigenous person who you who you, your colonial ancestors ousted
1: i don't know i mean i i can create a mental picture of myself just walking out the door I don't think I can create a mental picture of myself walking out the door without a car, with just a bindle stick and a few things in it, because I'm 75, you know. So,
0: but. But, yeah, but you know, that's also a, that's, that's something sad about our society, though, that the way I think about money and my career and stuff is I need to earn enough money so that when I'm no longer creating what the society thinks is of value, I've somehow stored up enough nuts to live the rest of my life, you know, totally on my own. What kind of sick society treats its elders like that? You know, and if not where, where you're, you're up shit's Creek. Right. Exactly. And I've done, you know,
1: it's interesting with the pandemic because my strategy for that is I have I converted a couple of spaces in my house into like rentals, like little cell, you know, little suites. And I've always thought, well, they're they're providing income now, and then later I can trade for care. Right, like like
0: Olympia Dukakis in uh, the, 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 <laughs> the, you know that show. Uh, they don't remember it from the whatever. There's this old lady living in San Francisco with all these cool hipsters, you know, renting spaces in her big Victorian house. Tales from the exactly. city, I think it's called.
1: It is right. You know, it's like it's like one of the features of the system we live in is if money is the is the measure of value, then you outsource the consequences you you basically you tell people you are free to have whatever life you want but the consequences of the pollution of all the the externalities of the capitalist system you're going to have to internalize the consequences so industry provides this sort of cornucopia but when there's a consequence, it's up to you. So it's like we are so far down the track. So before the pandemic, part of my strategy, if you will, but also my deep need for belonging was to move to this little island. It's not so little, but to move to a small community on an island and belong here, you know, just do all the things that one does to belong, you know, make friends and volunteer and, and you know, do theater and. <laughs> and 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 you know all the little community belonging things and then suddenly do ecstatic dance every Sunday suddenly that all disappears and it was like I've had this like oh my god I I didn't factor that in so it is true it is true and everybody's sort of scared and hunkered so there aren't people who are checking in on auntie Vicki you know so it's it's a strange, I don't know how we dial this back. I think we're going to have to dial it forward somehow. And perhaps that's the high touch part of it. You know, perhaps that's post-pandemic, if there ever is a post-pandemic, you know, where maybe we travel electronically for work or for, as you say, these massive, these beautiful conversations, cross-cultural but we've got a land i think indigenous tribes indigenous peoples are place based i mean the mountain is their god you take them away from the mountain they
0: it's like right well, they're place-based, but I mean, if you talk to a, a, someone like Tyson Tunka Porta, who I had on also, they're place-based, but they move around that place. So now we're on the mountain. Now the fish are good. So we'll go down to the stream for these weeks oh. and go over oh. here to collect our berries for this month. They're migratory, but in a, in a circle and they understand what? the season and they move through that. When I started trying to
1: figure out what was wrong with freedom in this society that it seemed to be the most beautiful thing was also the most destructive thing in our society? What was this about? One of my great teachers was uh, Amelia Rathbun, who was the founder of Creative Initiative. She's like 94. And I, I said, what is freedom, Amelia? And she, the first thing she says is territory. And I was like, what? But she said, you have to secure your food. If you don't have, you know, if you're an animal and you don't have a territory in which the things that you need, animals don't just roam around. They have a territory and they understand the boundaries of their territory. And the territory is your access to the fundamental resources of food and water. Your grazing range. Yeah, exactly. And so it's very interesting, this this relationship of freedom and limits is to have a territory and to tend your territory and to understand what things are necessary and what things are superficial to ha- be able to set a boundary? I know I'm being a little abstract. No, but, but the
0: interesting thing is, you know, and, and Stuart Brand of, of Whole Earth Review and all always talks about how he demanded that we get that photo of the Earth from space so that we would be environmentalist. And I wonder if, on the other hand, getting a picture of the Earth from space changed our notion of territory. It gave capitalists, it gave corporations the ability to go, oh, the whole world, you know, because we're no longer a rabbit running around in a field. Now we can see the whole darn thing. Isn't New York like that, though? New York
1: is like a, a hodgepodge of neighborhoods.
0: It is. But you know, when I was in Manhattan and living in the healthy way or a psychologically healthy way, anyway, I had boundaries. It was like, I'm going to spend, if I go beyond Houston Street to 14th Street, you know, or Avenue C to Fifth Avenue, that's my zone. If I'm going to leave that zone today, then I'm counting that as a trip. And I'm going to be conscious that I'm going somewhere. You know, right. And it really did. Otherwise, I refused to leave that, that zone. You know, if I made an appointment, I'll make it in the, in the closest part of my box to where you are. But I'm not leaving. And it That's really helped me. Yeah,
1: It's like, it's like um, 20 city blocks is a mile. Mm-hmm. And when, when I was in New York years ago, I mean, the times I visited New York, 20 blocks was what I could walk. I would look at a dress I had to get to, and if it was less than 20 blocks, I would walk there because that's a a mile, and that's in sort of a walking territory. So that's a, you know, it's really, we don't even have a body-based sense of space. Right. I I think it's quite, I mean, it's exciting, but I think it's quite disorienting
0: for the actual sensate being to be living in these sort of synthetic environments. Holy. Right. So the grid pattern of New York, I mean, and now it's what websites do you visit or what social networks are you on, or, you
1: know. I don't know what the solution is. I mean, that's what my my whole life's work is it's not mastery of money it's mastery of need fulfillment and understanding yourself as a complex beautiful being and putting money in its place and then it's local food how do you have some some food sovereignty how do you have a food community how do you have how do you belong somewhere through the food that you eat and then it's like dialogue how do you get together with people in cafes how do you just actually talk to people you know face to face it's all what is an appropriate scale for a human to have a sense of self-expression and true mastery in smaller human communities, you had to master the technology of where you lived. You had to master fishing and hunting and, and berry gathering and, you know, sewing and, and, and tanning hot. You had to master, everybody had to master the technology of where you lived and, and we're so far from that. And to me, that feels imprisoning. That feels like I can't use my wits and my will and my
0: talents and my networks, too. You know. I know. Everyone, I think we all feel a bit like we're living on a space station. And we don't even know how the equipment works, you know? I can read the exactly. rules and operate some of these things. But <laughs> exactly. like if your new refrigerator <laughs> broke down, you're depending on... S- Samsung or someone to come fix it. I, I
1: would have trouble if my freezer broke down because I have a year's worth of, of salmon and <laughs> organically grown chicken that was, you know, pasture chicken that, that grew on my island. I'm a survivalist, dude. Just stick with me. I don't know. Is
0: there any topic that we want to cover, other or or is this wander perfect? Oh, it's wander's always fine. We're nomadic. We're nomadic thinkers. (laughs) But I guess you know what I'm interested in is maybe it always feels like this. You know, I always felt like, look, I wrote this book, Life Inc, in 2007, and they haven't changed. Corporatism, You know, I wrote about, you know, how we should be regarding technology in 2010. I explained it that if you're not programming, you know, you're going to get programmed if you're not aware. They didn't do it. And you wrote, you know, you wrote your books before I wrote mine, and it's like, and sure, a lot of us followed. You know, David Bollier followed you, and 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 Helena Norberg Hodge about localism, and um, you know about the commons, about the corporation, and we've got the Schumacher Society and Small is Beautiful, and you've got the Post Carbon Institute that you're with. It's just so hard to have perspective. Are these movements spreading and growing, and or? The fact that Bernie Sanders can't even get the Democratic nomination means that, shoot, we're screwed. (laughs) I mean, have we
1: failed? That's such a great question, and I really have gone through that. I mean, I, I have a lifetime of good ideas that should have taken over the world. And, you know, I've been on a sort of like a, a Joan of our quest to like, like you know, there's got to be like, like there's something in there. You know, if I could just find the, the source code or the, you know, the spring from which all of this, the river of junk comes. And one of the things that helps me is getting out of the present moment and understanding that, uh, and the pandemic really helps, that we are, we are in historical forces that, are way larger than we are we're in history you know and 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 so our generation really thought we could remake the world and and probably you and I are still you know (laughs) we're like the Japanese soldier who never like understood that the war was over and I thought we could do it on our watch you know I gave 10 years to the teaching of Your Money, Your Life, the teachings, because I was determined that by the year 2000, savings rate would go up consumerism would go down. The ecological footprint measurement would go down. We would be able to live within the means of the planet. It was so obvious to me that this is what was needed. And all I had to do was just tell everybody the good news. You know, I mean, look at Jesus, what happened to his teaching? <laughs> so I think there is, when I think about like the history of, you know, I don't know how many civilizations this one um, man Mr. Glubb said there, were, there had been a hundred, but there was a, there's a structure to the rise and fall of civilizations, And so we're in a time of, of we're, we're, according to him, according to the features that he says are part of a civilization that is just like teetering over the edge, that's us. We're in a dying civilization. And I know we shouldn't say that. <laughs> But 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 I mean when you think a hundred have come and gone and come and gone and come and gone, it becomes really interesting. Where is the new civilization? Like where's the new human coming out of the tree? Where's the new civilization? You know, whether it is the, you know, the sort of Fridays for the Future generation is that, you know, there's new civilizations. Being born now. We're just in one that has run its course. And when I think about that, I think, well, of course, you know, the work I'm doing is sort of,
0: it's literally countercultural.
1: So it becomes a lifeboat.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think about it the other way. I think that their work is counterculture. Your work is pro-cultural, but.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, yeah, exactly. But maybe we are the civilization that's rising. Maybe your book and your books and my book, just like with the fire movement, you know, it's like, I didn't know that I was like the sort of grandmother, the the grand dame of a movement. I had no idea existed. You know, and suddenly, like, and, you know, when I came out with the update, I found I found all these people who was like, you know, half a million people who were all over it. You know, it was like, really? Yeah. So we don't know. It's like, it's like the, you know, part of immaturity is, is not just doing with your best heart, but is expecting you can control outcome.
0: And so we don't know. I, that's part of what I accept. What could possibly go right, even in the end of civilization, is that. You know, when you think about the end of the Roman civilization, you know, maybe Caesar died or Caligula or somebody, but it's like all the people didn't disappear, right? Exactly. It's, it's something else comes. It's not like the civilization ends and everybody's dead and then <laughs> just like one baby somehow survives or new monkeys <laughs> turn into people. Right, It's that money right. systems change and the way people operate change. And over a period of two or three or four centuries, we go from being a television air conditioner, big agro-based society to a solar-powered local oh, loot really? you know, playing society.
1: And that is a possible future. And I have worked toward that future, but what I think I've really lost in the last couple of years, facing the the, the magnitude of what we're up against, is the th- the thought that I could control outcomes. That if I worked hard enough, I could actually change the trajectory. And it's been very despairing that I I have not been able to. But I think that we're we're actually seeding the collective whatever it is with the poss- possibilities there's many possibilities out there you know for what the future will be another piece of writing that i'm doing is <laughs> it's basically trying to express that there's four stories that are competing for dominance on this planet and every story is an anathema to the other story there's the story that life is about transcendence and the earth doesn't matter the earth is a veil of tears and and the point is to escape from the flesh materiality. There's a story of AI and the singularity that, you know, carbon-based life is sort of messy, you know? It's just, it's not that great. It was sort of like a, a stage for intelligence to develop itself into silicon-based life. That story is like totally in conflict with the story of transcendence. Then there's the story of progress, you know, the Western story of ever-onward and that materiality is the playground. It's the stuff we get to create with, you know? So the destiny is the stars. And then there's the story of heaven on earth, you know? It's like, we're already here. <laughs> this is it. And so the transcendent story, the AI story, and the progress story are completely destructive to the garden story. Like, a lot of what I've worked against, if you will,
0: is the dominance of those other stories. And that's funny. That's what I've been what I've been exactly worried about. You know, so I read like Myth of Eternal Return and the idea of reincarnation and circular, the be here now, everything. And and that leads me to see all of these progress narratives, all of these new new things, all of this transcendence agnosticism as kind of the enemy or the distraction from. The now. But on the other hand, and also as a Jew in particular, <laughs> I do believe in progress and social justice and making the world better. So do we somehow let all these narratives coexist? Does our do we go, you know, with a circle and a line and get a beautiful spiral and make progress while we stay circular? Or is that itself, is that is that am I just tricking myself?
1: I think we have to let it all exist because it
0: does. <laughs> But in balance somehow, you know, like more of a yin and a yang rather than let all this yang just take over.
1: I don't know. It's, it's you know, I've studied a lot about the polarization, you know, and I have friends who are very into a lot of the conspiracy theory narratives, you know, QAnon. And I try to stay in conversation outside of indignation, just really curious one of the things I find is that if you can enter the information that they have, what they're doing makes sense. And so you have to think, you know, like one friend who's just keeps sending me all these links to like, you know, RT sponsored, you know, <laughs> intellectuals who are like complain about being kicked off the mainstream media. But if you think that everybody somehow has a piece of the picture I'm not condoning what Trump and his people are up to now. I do not condone that at all. But there's a, there's a piece of the angst in our society that is embodied in that. What is that? And is it possible for us to listen to, the, as we talked about in the beginning, listen to the song of all these stories? What is the song? Because in a way, everybody, when you think about it, seems to be trying to make a contribution you know, and even if they have what we think is a distorted narrative, behind that distorted narrative is probably fear or <laughs> greed, but, but it's also some longing. I think part of the task is this harmonization of the stories. There is something about maturity that can allow many points of view to, to have a contribution without sacrificing your own integrity. You need
0: a softness and a flexibility to be able to engage with life that way. You've got to be more river reed than than cedar tree.
1: Yeah. Well, I the cedar tree is in communication with the river reed. You know, they're all yeah. But I think that's the cedar tree
0: is pretty flexible when when you learn about it though. Yeah.
1: But it's part of maturity is like when you realize I'm not just the river reed, I'm the forest me as River Reed cannot survive without salmon, cannot survive without cedar. I think this is maturation is that when you understand deeply that you're part of a larger whole and that you cannot ultimately succeed if that larger whole is somehow not succeeding. It's like talking about our books, you know? It's like we did our best into a narrative that had a huge headwind on what we were offering. To me, that feels like a quest. Like when I was like reviewing all the interviews I'd done for what could possibly go right, listening for the song of it, You know, what I was hearing wasn't the policies and wasn't the big ideas. It was something, some qualities of maturity, you know, a sense of history, a sense of time, a sense of justice. These are things that I just think they're valuable to seek to embody, to use as sort of guideposts as we move forward. We don't know where we're going. We're lost in a sea of time. And we can only be moral beings in that. That's the only tiller we have. That's the only sale we have is, is our ethics, our integrity, our humility. I mean, these are – that's the fundamentals. That's the fundamentals. And it's
0: such a better way to navigate than accumulation.
1: Right. So you're not coming from my fridge, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, with all that salmon, maybe. It's wild, fresh <laughs> – Fine. Exactly. I bet you, you're the kind of person who's got an extra key under the rock next to the mailbox. I'll I'll get in there. You probably leave the door friggin' open. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, I'll be over. And if your refrigerator or freezer need repair, though, you can interrupt. Talk to my... somebody else. Oh, you. Yeah, you talk to me while I'm while I'm stealing your food. <laughs> oh, Vicky, it's so great to have you on on Team Human, and and more importantly, in in my life because uh, you know we've been on the same journey and the fact that you've uh, uh you've been on it longer than me and are still coming at it with love hope and humor you know means that i guess i can i could still drum up some or should all right well thank you vicky robin for being on team human we are welcome thank you for having me You've been on Team Human. Our guest today, the author of Blessing the Hands That Feed Us and host of the What Could Possibly Go Right podcast, my friend Vicky Robin. You can find out more about Vicky at vickyrobin.com or you can find out more about Vicky and all of our guests at teamhuman.fm where you can also become a supporting member of the team. Team Human is edited by Luke Robert Mason and produced by Josh Chapdelin. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.